All right, well, good morning. Happy Fourth of July weekend to everyone. Uh, last week, um, this has been a, an interesting week for me. So Brandon it basically is just going to take the next month off, I believe. Uh, and we're going to pick the slack up for him, which is fine. Uh, every now and then, a pastor needs to be able to just kind of breathe a little bit and, and, and spend some time here with God's uh, given him. And so Brandon's doing that. And so um, today, uh, I want to pick up from where he left off last week. And so if you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 20. Uh, last week we ended uh, verse 16. Uh, and, and if you missed it, you missed out on a pretty interesting morning. Uh, we had um, some of our school-age boys lined up, and they got, like, sprayed right in the face with water. It was great. Uh, if you want to hear why that happened, just go back to our website, listen to the message, you'll hear it. Uh, but I'm going to pick up from where he left off with this last verse in verse 16, and then we're going to read the rest of chapter 20 uh, and dive into, into it today. Uh, so that last verse, verse 16. So the last will be first... And the first last. God has been, um, God's been hitting me with this uh, this week. uh, And men's breakfast on Saturday morning, I got hit with this, and I'll talk about that uh, in a second. But this whole mindset, this whole mentality uh, that that the last will be first and the first last. As far as a society goes, we struggle with this. I mean, we, we can see this. We can see the struggle that happens uh, with, with this verse as a whole when you throw it in the midst of our culture, our society, that, that I would look at you. I like you. Right? It's easy for me to say, okay, these guys, they're more important than me. But what about, what about people like I completely like, disagree with? Like, I, I, want, I want to hurt them, right? I don't want to hurt them. But if I did... Um, I, could I put them before myself? Before myself. Uh, at work, that person, that, you know, that person. Could I put them before myself at school? Could I put that student before myself? Could I, could I do that and, and feel like I'm following what Scripture has? And for myself, that has been a struggle. And so, if you have your talk notes, there's, there's open space for you. We called this specific message, Three Scenes, One Jesus. Uh, because there's a consistency that Jesus has that I think for a lot of us, um, myself definitely included, we miss out on. And I really want to kind of pick up, pick up where Bag left off. So this scene one, okay, there's three scenes we're going to unpack uh, in Matthew chapter 20. And, and we just read verse 16, so I want to start to pick up at 17. Before I do this, uh, this first scene is, is Jesus um, basically telling the disciples about what's, what's about to take place. Uh, he's about to... to He's about to be crucified. Now, he's done this twice already uh, in Matthew. Uh, and, and I'll put those up on the screen for you because you're not turned there right now. But Matthew 16, verse 21. Uh, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, if there's a person in Scripture I can relate to, Peter is one of those guys, right? Uh, he is he's a person that's constantly challenging, questioning, uh, messing up. Uh, I can relate to the life of, of Peter. And Peter, right there in front of everybody, challenges Jesus uh, and says, Hey, wait a second. <laughs> this can't happen. You're, you're God, by the way. Just in case you didn't know, right? Peter's like, the whole reason I signed up for this is because... You are God. 
right? And so for, for you to tell me right now that you're going to predict your death, that this is going to take place, I, I struggle with that. In fact, um, it says in verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes to be killed and the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> rebuke, Peter rebuked Jesus, right? I know on my bad days I struggled. Peter straight up just rebuked Jesus. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Ouch. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So this is the first time, and we, if, you, um, if you are really good note takers, then some of this might kind of pop up in your memory, because Brandon covered this uh, not too long ago, uh, about this first time that Jesus predicts his death. But you can see, just right out of the gate, with the first time we, humanity, struggle with being able to see why this happens. Right? Uh, if there's one person that, that could avoid a bad day, there's one person who could avoid something like this. It would be Jesus. And so to hear the Son of God tell man, tell these 12 disciples, hey, by the way, I know we've, we've been through a lot together. We've healed many. I'm about to die. At the hands of the high priest, the elders, at their calling. I could see why Peter would struggle with the why. A question that I would imagine... A lot of us have asked at some point or another, why? God, where are you? Why is this happening this way? The second time that, that Jesus predicts uh, his death is in Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 through 23. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And then that last line, And they were greatly distressed. Again, here we are in a place where something doesn't make sense. And so it just, it just messes with us. We struggle with it. I would, imagine, <laughs> I would imagine most of the times that I, probably all the times that I have fallen short of God's glory is because whatever was happening didn't make sense. Whatever was happening, I questioned. Whatever was happening, I turned into Peter and said, no, this can't happen. That's not the way this is supposed to go. I've got this all mapped out. And then we get to our third time. This we're going to really kind of open up today uh, with uh, verse 17. So Matthew chapter 20, 17 through 19. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, open up. If you need one, raise your hand and we'll run one to you. We've got free Bibles here. Uh, verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. This account was the most uh, in-depth account that Jesus has provided uh, thus far. But once again, it didn't make sense to the disciples. Why? Why does this have to happen this way? Jesus, the whole purpose of me dropping everything and following you is because we're bigger than this. You're God. 
death doesn't defeat you. So I don't understand why. And, and then I also question why the Gentiles turned over to the Gentiles. I'm trying to put myself in a mindset of the disciples hearing this for now the third time, but a time that is more in depth. Why are you going to be turned over to the Gentiles? I mean, the, if anything, the Gentiles owe you everything. You're the bridge. You're the bridge for the Gentiles. Up to this point, the Gentiles are just, they were down here, and, and the chosen the Jews were up here, and, and although that's still there, Jesus has built this bridge to say that all of us are God's children. All of us are His chosen children. So why would the Gentiles want to do this? Once again, these questions I would imagine a lot of you have asked. Why? God, where are you? I would imagine these are questions, if, if you're anything like me, They've plagued you. But in reality, as we take a step back and we look at the grand schemes, we look at everything, Jesus has the most unfair outcome in all of our stories. And his response is that of humility and pursuit. I mean, even the disciples went on later to die because they believed in Jesus. But they died for Jesus. Jesus himself died for every single person in this room. Jesus himself died for the very people who put him on the cross. Jesus had the most unfair, unfair outcome. But he knew. He had a wisdom and he had an understanding of what God's calling was for his life because that's what he pursued. For many times in my life, as I've asked the question, why? God, where are you at? It's because my agenda was in the way of him. If I get let go from a job, if a family member gets sick, my first question is, why? Why would you? There, there are, there are uh, several people in, in my life who won't, at this time, have a faith in Jesus because of the world around them. Because of what they see, because like, if God exists, then why is, why is all this happening? Right? It's a question that, I'm not going to say it's an unfair question, right? But it's the same way that it, it's the same question that a little kid is asking. Hey, go clean your room. Why? Right? And you, you just have that like face. Don't ask me why. Just go do it, right? But we, with, with, with the way that we look at the world, with our agenda in mind, I can see why we struggle with this question. Why? Jesus, why do you have to die for this? Why can't you just snap your fingers and fix it? What does it say about our role in this story? That the one who could have altered everything didn't. What does it say about your role at your job? What does it say about your role as a, as a mother, as a father, as a husband, as a wife, as, as a friend? What does it say about that role? The difficulties that come with that role. That the one who could have altered it to benefit him more, chose not to. What does that mean for us? There's a consistency that Jesus is constantly showing us. But our struggle is that we get in the way. Saturday morning, not, not yesterday, but a, a week ago, we had men's breakfast. And I don't know if this ever happened to you. Maybe you had a thought. Uh, and that thought has probably maybe been in your mind for a while. But when you actually said it, you heard it, and then like, I don't know, a light bulb kind of went off, like, Oh, 
there's a thought that I've had for a while, but I didn't. I don't think I've ever actually said it to anyone. I don't no reason until this breakfast happened. Um, we're you know we're talking, a bunch of good-looking men um, having breakfast, and and I remember we were talking about the goodness of God, and I'd said, well, one of my struggles is that my version of a good God is my version of a good God. Right? My, my version of who God is fits into this kind of line, this, this way. And, and if for whatever reason that course gets changed, if for whatever reason something happens in my life that I'm asking why, I'm asking God, where are you, uh, then, then I'm struggling with the concept of what I view as a good God. When in reality... The goodness of our Father sent His only Son to die for us. And that's my, that's my struggle. My struggle is that my agenda determines that God is good. Right? My, my story, my, the way I want it to go. And I would imagine for a lot of us, we find ourselves in those seasons. We find ourselves in those times where life happens. And for whatever reason, it goes from He's a good God to God, where are you? God, why? When all along He's been a consistent Father the whole time. Our agendas get in the way. So this is the first scene where Jesus comes in and He could have. He could have snapped His fingers and said, let's do this differently. I'm God. I'm all-powerful. But the only way to fix this thing called sin, the only way to bridge this gap, is that Jesus has to suffer. Jesus has to die. Jesus has to carry the weight of this. And the disciples couldn't understand that, and I get it. The disciples struggled with how is this a good thing? How is this the right thing to do? This doesn't make sense. Turning you over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged, why does it have to happen that way? Jesus' consistency shows us that we really need to wrap our minds around what a good father means. Scene 2, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Okay, let me stop there for a second. So this lady's name is Salome, okay? Um, Scripture kind of is trying to figure it out. I've seen more that Salome is the sister of Mary, Jesus' mother. I've also seen that Salome is possibly a cousin of Mary. Either way, they're family. Salome, Jesus, are family. The two sons, James and John, uh, is who Salome is coming up saying, Hey, these two sons of mine, can, can they sit at the right hand and, and, and the left hand of your throne? And this is referring back to uh, something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19. And I'll, I'll put up on the screen as well. Uh, Verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones. So He's talking to His twelve disciples here. Judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands for My name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And then you have this line again. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So, so we go back now to verse 20. As Salome is, 
in front of everyone, goes up to Jesus and says, Hey, family member, nephew, right? My two sons, James and John, when you do get these 12 thrones, can they be like right beside you? Right? Can, they, can one be on the left and one be on the right? Now, I am a mama's boy, so I completely understand why Salome, why mama is doing this. And I get that. I understand it completely. As Salome is talking to Jesus, and I, I can picture this in my head. James and John are right there. Salome is right there. They're, they're <laughs> Salome is talking to Jesus. And Jesus answered. And I think, I really believe, I picture this in my head. When Jesus answered, I think he completely disregards Salome and he looks straight at the two boys, at James and John. I believe he hears the question, but he goes straight to them. You do not know what you are asking. So this is at verse 22. You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now keep in mind, there's ten other disciples sitting here listening to this conversation. Right? I mean, they've been together since the beginning of all this. They've seen all the crazy things that happened. They're, they're sitting there hanging out, and all of a sudden, Salome and James and John like have this plan in their head. Hey, so they're that... that the throne business. We need to talk about that. Can I go ahead and get these two seats right beside you? And these ten are like, what is she doing? What are they doing? Right? And so you, I could just imagine the scowl that they have on their faces as they look at this situation unfolding. Like, oh, we'll just take the outside seats. It's all good. Don't worry about us. Right? The outside seats. That's awesome. And when the ten heard it, and this is verse 24, And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Again, again, we get back to this. The first will be last, and the last first. Like, we can't ever say once our life is done, I I didn't know that's what you were calling me to do. I didn't know, God, you were calling me to serve others. Like, we we can't use that excuse. It is is poor. Just in in this chapter alone, Jesus is screaming it here. He's teaching it. Once again, it's, it's our concept of a good, good father. How do you see this good father? How do you see him? What does he look like? How does your story look through him? I want to bring up that Matthew 19, uh, if you will please again. Matthew 19, because I, I feel like as Salome and James and John hear this, Perception is off. I'm going to read it one more time. And it'll be up on the screen for you. Uh, Matthew, or, yeah, Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones. Okay? So I'm just kind of rereading this here. 
judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And I would imagine at this point that James and John are like, oh, this is awesome. Right, we're going we're to be able to have a throne. We should get the ones closest to Jesus. And as they're having this conversation, Jesus says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And they don't hear that part. I feel like James and John just were really excited about what they heard. And I feel like we do the same thing I know I do. They don't hear that last part. And so the way they take their next steps, their next breath, their next move will be contingent on these 12 thrones and what their view of these 12 thrones entail. And so because of it, they make a step. They make a step with Mama in front of everybody that says, Hey, we really liked what you had to say. That was good. Jesus, good job. Can we have the two closest seats? We'd like to go ahead and reserve them. MovieTickets.com, go. Right? And, and Jesus is like, did you not hear everything that I just said? Yeah, there's 12 thrones. The first will be last, and the last will be first. That's where I believe we struggle. That's where I know I struggle. This good father concept eludes me at times because it's contingent on my view of a good father not understanding that there are plenty of times in my life where I've had to be broken in order to truly see Him. Because I get in the way. I get in the way. The last part of that, um, the second scene, I'm going to read one more time um, in verse 26. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Okay? And so, a servant is referred to a hired worker who helped in maintaining the master's household. The slave was someone forced into service. These were two of the lowest positions in Jewish society. And in one breath, in one breath, Jesus reverses their status in the community to indicate prominence and greatness. In one breath, Jesus finds the two lowest positions and says, here's what you need to be. You need to be a servant. You need to serve one another. And I'm going to find the two lowest jobs that I can give you to show you what that looks like. Because if I were to tell you right now that I need you to be a servant, I need you to be a slave, I think most of us in this room would say, no, no, that's not my version of a good father. And so because of that, we invite without even meaning to, we invite this selfish mentality to take over. Not even meaning to. I don't believe it's our heart's desire to say, okay, how can I make everything here about me? I think this is something we inadvertently do. Because we don't hear that last part. We don't hear the first will be last and the last first. But Jesus, in his consistent manner, is screaming this the whole time. He's screaming this. He did it with his, with his prophetic word, saying that I'm going to have to die for every single one of you. I'm, this is my way of serving you. Not, not just some of you, not just the twelve. No, no, no. The, the soldier who pierced Jesus, I, I'm, gonna, I'm doing this for him. The people who, 
spitting on me, were yelling at me as I walked this cross, as he walked this cross up, I have to do this for them. I mean, Jesus is consistently screaming this message to anyone who will hear it, to anyone who will follow it. And then we get to scene three. Verse 29. Now at this point, before I read verse 29, at this point, Jesus knows, he's, he's shown, hey, this is about to happen. Right? I remember, I remember being younger and said, okay, if I ever get something that will like, it is a terminal illness that will end my life, I'm going to just live it up. Right? I'm going to just live it up. The last remaining days, do everything I do. What if you go into debt? Okay, then I go into debt. I'm going to live it up, right? I remember saying that uh, when I was younger. As Jesus knows, because he's Jesus, fully human, fully God, knows what's about to happen, knows what's about to take place, knows that his life is about to end, and he knows what, exactly what it looks like. He enters into verse 29. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd, following Jesus, rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more. So Jesus, leading a crowd, straight up says, Hey, stop. This isn't about you. It's about Jesus. Do you know what's about to happen? Do you know what's going on right now? Jesus is making this journey. He knows, he's, he's told us that he's going to have to give up his life. He's going to be flawed. He's going to be spit on. He's going to be yelled at. He's going to be crucified on a cross. So you two beggars, stop. The crowd is just trying to silence them. They cried out all the more. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Verse 32, and stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. On the way to his death, Jesus still served. I hope I can stay the same. I hope, I hope I, I pursue his word enough and I live his word enough that I can say the same, that on his way to death, he still served. Now, there's another side of me that hears this and says, and I, and I think about my life, and I think about people I've lost, and I say, well, get, Jesus, why can't you do that for this family member? All right, why? I get it. These two guys, great story. They got to see life is good for them. They followed. Okay, why can't that happen once again? That's my perception of what I need a good, good father to be. Now I'm placing these parameters on God. God, I love what you did here. Love it. Great story. Way to go. Good job. Let's repeat it. Right here. I just need you to repeat it right here in this person's life. So I'm taking away what God did and saying, okay, that's good. I need you to up your game a little bit, though, for this person. Ready, set, go. And if it doesn't happen, I'm, I'm, I've literally said this, God, where are you? Because my perspective, my perception of a good, good father in my life has centered around my agenda for what a good, good father is. And all the while, we have three different scenes here. We have 66 books of scenes and one consistent Jesus. 
Jesus responds that greatness in the kingdom has nothing to do with status or power over others. I mean, he's living this. Greatness in the kingdom has nothing to do with status of power over others. Rather, it involves two things. It involves two things. Submission to the will of God, even if the submission includes suffering. And the second thing, humble service towards others in our community. I mean, we say it every Sunday. Love God by loving people. If I were to take that statement and just dive into it a little bit deeper... Our submission to the will of God, even if the submission includes suffering. And second, humble service towards others in the community. Jesus himself models this kind of self-sacrificial service. The very, the very salvation that you and I get to enjoy is a result of Jesus' willingness to pursue the path of servanthood even unto death. So what does that mean for our role in this story? Jed, we can start wrapping this up, wherever you might be. I don't know. I don't know in this place how many of you are in a season or in a place where I believe God is a good, good father. I believe it. But I'd have to admit that this good father might look different than what Mark's good father looks like, Kobe's good father looks like. And there's a problem with that. There's a problem with that. Therefore, we have to be able to pursue this with everything we got. Or, or we invite a relationship with God that looks different in a way that doesn't glorify Him. Jesus has been consistent, especially in these three scenes. And I will admit, it is so hard for me at times to wrap my mind around why He's doing what He's doing. But every time I see in Scripture the pursuit of Him, I see a kingdom that I just can't fathom. But it takes a pursuit. R.C. Sproul said it this way, I think the greatest weakness in the church today is that almost no one believes that God invests His power in the Bible. Everyone is looking for power in a program, in a methodology, in a technique, in anything and everything but that in which God has placed it, His Word. He alone has the power to change lives for eternity and that power is focused on the Scriptures. Let's pray. Father, I would love it if every time we talked about your word, your direction, your will, that we would simply chase after your truth that we wouldn't chase after our agendas, we wouldn't chase after what we believe a good father looks like, but through your word we would find a hope, an understanding, a wisdom, 
that would change our lives forever. Understanding that because of sin entering into the world, we will have bad days. Every heart in this place will face struggle. Sin requires it. Sin chases after brokenness. Sin chases after weakness. And so God, I pray that in this place right now, we're able to understand not why you're doing what you're doing, but your consistent, unfailing love, even on those days that bring us struggles. Even on the days that bring us the question, why? I pray that we wouldn't find comfort in the question of God, where are you? But we'd find comfort chasing after you. Understanding that the one who could have changed everything as far as making life easier for himself, if Jesus wanted to, being all-powerful as he is, the one that could have didn't. So God, I pray that we further grow in our role and our understanding of what you're calling us to do on a daily basis. We have to submit to your will. We have to submit to your servant's heart. You place people in our lives daily. At times, there are people we click with. At times, it's family. At times, it's people we completely disagree with. I pray that it is our heart's desire to serve your will and to serve your children. God, we love you. In your son's name we pray these things. Amen.